0: Welcome into your daily source for the Cincinnati Reds throughout the offseason. This is the Locked On Reds Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Carr. What's up, Reds fans? Welcome in to the Locked On Reds podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. On today's show, we're going to talk about the 1940 World Series Championship that the Reds had in seven games over the Tigers. Very exciting series. We're going to spend a lot of time on game seven, but we're going to look at the whole series. And then also, in the second half of today's show, we'll talk about Crosley Field with our friend Cam Miller. But before we get to all of that, make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast on whatever platform you're currently listening to. Also, follow me on Twitter at Jeff Carr with three Fs and follow the show at Lockdown Reds and save the Lockdown Reds line number into your phone at 513-549-0159. Get your questions, comments, if you've got a reaction to something that I say. Maybe you've got a memory of the 1940 Reds in some way, shape, or form, let me know on the Locked On Reds line, or let me know on Twitter as well. We talked about the 1940 regular season for the Reds on Tuesday, and yesterday's podcast had a special guest, Dave Yeddy Armbruster, join me for some talking about Marty, Joe, Cowboy, and what it's like working in the Reds' booth for the past 30-something years. We break that all down. If you missed it, make sure you check it out. That I had a blast with that conversation. So let's jump into today's topic, though. Today, we're looking at the 1940s. World Series. As I mentioned, the Reds, I mean, obviously we know that the Reds won the 1940 World Series. They won in seven games, a very interesting seven game series. And it would have been fun. Maybe fun's the right word. I don't know. Sometimes it's hard to figure out if fun is the right word to use in conjunction with the wonderful Twitter. But I think it would have been interesting to see what Twitter would have been like for this World Series. There are so many people nowadays that want to jump on a take, jump on and, and be the first person to say, oh, well, psh, this series is over. And they would have been saying that after game one. Detroit beat Cincinnati 7-2 to at Crosley Field, and they did it against Paul Derringer, one of the Reds' two best, the one-two punch that led the Reds' rotation. And Twitter just would have been all ablaze after that one. Then the Reds came back one game two, five to three with Bucky Walters pitching. A lot of interesting names on the pitching side for the Tigers. The Tigers had three pitchers. Their best pitcher, Bobbo Newsom, was a phenomenal pitcher and really only had one blemish. And as far as blemishes go, it's a pretty good blemish. We'll get to that here in just a minute. The other guy, there's actually two other guys who pitched, or, well, three other guys who pitched for the Tigers, two with interesting names. One of them was Schoolboy Rowe. Okay, so technically Schoolboy was his nickname, which still is a very interesting nickname to have been given. His actual name was Linwood Thomas Rowe, but he went by Schoolboy, so we're going to call him Schoolboy Rowe. He got knocked around in Game 2, and the Reds evened the series at one apiece. Rowe would end up also pitching in Game 6 that the Reds won 4 to nothing to tie the series up at 3. And then one other guy who pitched for the Tigers was Dizzy Trout. He got knocked around in Game 4 whenever the Reds won that one. But as far as the series goes, it was the Tigers won, then the Reds won, then the Tigers won, then the Reds won. So you got 2-2. Two and two. Then the Tigers won again, and then the Reds won again. And so now we are... To Game Seven, and and what's interesting about the first six games, none of them were close. The closest game, I mean, uh, the, Game Two, the Reds won five to three, but the Reds were in hand. That game was in hand pretty early, as the Reds just kind of sat on the lead. Bucky Walters pitched a phenomenal series. Looking at the two of those guys, there were a total of sixty-one innings pitched in the nineteen forty World Series. Paul Deringer and Bucky Walters pitched a total of 37 and a third of those 61 innings. They combined for an ERA of 2.1. All of Bucky Walters' starts were complete games, and all but one. Paul Derringer had three starts. Bucky Walters had two. Paul Derringer went the distance in two of his three starts. I mentioned... During the regular season episode that Gene Thompson was also a very key member of this starting rotation for the Reds did not do so good in the World Series, got knocked around in game five as the Tigers won eight to nothing. It was really all on the backs of Bucky Walters and Paul Deringer, which led us up to game seven, where in Crosley Field, the one and only time that the Reds have clinched a World Series at home. Back in 1940, this was October 8th of 1940. And what a phenomenal game it was. If, if this happened today, with all of the television fanfare, the national media there and everything, it'd probably go down as one of the best games that ever happened. The Reds won 2-1. to one, And both pitchers, Paul Derringer and Babu Newsom, pitch-complete games. Just phenomenal. No bullpen calls whatsoever. And the drama that was in that game, because the Tigers took a one nothing lead after the third inning, and Newsom was on his game. No red touched second base through the first six innings. And then in the, t- in the bottom of the seventh, Frank McCormick hit a leadoff double. And the drama that was in that, and it's funny because I've read some different things that talk about this, where some of the Reds players afterward admitted that if everything would have went down the way that it should have, McCormick never would have scored. But after McCormick doubled, the very next batter was Jimmy Ripple, dude playing in the outfield for the Reds, and he hit a double off of the right field, uh, off like the, the netting in right field. What was strange about that was, though, because it was like a fly ball, and Frank McCormick had to hold up because he wasn't sure if it was going to be caught by the right fielder. And had the cutoff man known that, he would have been able to throw him at home because Frank McCormick ended up rounding third and ran in for home to score the tying run of the game. And whenever the ball careened off the wall, picked up by the right fielder, he threw it in to the cutoff man. The cutoff man just kind of took his time. He thought everything was kind of figured out already. He thought McCormick was going to score easy. So the cutoff man took his time, didn't turn around to see that he could have thrown McCormick out at home. And that one key error cost them the game because the game got tied. Then there in the bottom of the seventh, And then three batters later, as uh, Jimmy Wilson, the catcher who had to – he was the bullpen catcher. He got signed to replace Willard Hershberger on the roster. He had to play a good amount in this World Series because Ernie Lombardi's injuries were really hobbling him. He only had, I think it was like three or four bats in the entire World Series. But Jimmy Wilson was able to bunt Jimmy Ripple from second to third and then Billy Myers, the shortstop back then, hit a sack fly that scored the go-ahead run for the Reds. And, and just a moment to, so that that, that that made it two to one and Derringer shut down the Tigers, Hank Greenberg and the Tigers for the rest of the game. And the Reds end up winning two to one to clinch their second ever World Series. Get the monkey off their back. As I said in the regular season episode, there was this stigma around the Reds that their one and only World Series championship was tainted and therefore shouldn't even really count. Now they had one that could count, but kind of as I mentioned something with Ernie Lombardi, he had very few at bats. Lonnie Frey, who if you go back and you look at the 1940 Reds played a pivotal role during the season as their second baseman during the World Series a metal cooler, or top of a metal cooler, fell onto his right foot, broke his foot, had a deep cut on it. He was limited to only a handful of bats in the World Series, so they had to put Eddie Juiced in. Eddie Juiced was the reserve middle infielder, the reserve shortstop, really. But he ended up playing a great deal at second base, and as far as offense is concerned, Lonnie Frey in 1940, his OPS plus was 101. Eddie Juce's was 57. So not a great trade off there but the the Reds were able to play around that in one of the best games in World Series history, 2 to 1, both guy both starting pitchers going the distance for each team. And then, you know, it it was shortly thereafter that Frank McCormick got the MVP, no Cy Young award back then, although I firmly believe Bucky Walters would have been the Cy Young award winner. We could debate that till the cows come home. We'll never know the answer to it. And it's kind of funny because uh, Joel Luckup mentioned that the best red ever from the state of Pennsylvania was Bucky Walters and not Ken Griffey Jr. We'll talk to him about that next week. Going to have him on the show. But the 1940 Reds were an awesome team. The only team that year to win over 100 games and going the distance in the World Series. This was the first World Series in five years that did not feature the New York Yankees. Just take that. The Yankees actually won four in a row before 1940, and they finished third in the American League. And that was another thing, too. before Before we talked to Cam Miller about Crosley Field, the way that everything was set up back then... The regular season was everything. Now, the league was much smaller. There weren't 30 teams to deal with and stuff, but there was just an American League and a National League. There were no divisions. And whoever won each league, those two teams went to the World Series. I, I love that format. I don't know why. There's something about that. It just it puts such an onus on regular season performance, and it'd be... Uh, I I mean, I'm sure it would never happen nowadays because you've got ad revenue and all that different stuff with the playoffs, and they're talking about expanding the playoffs, and so Lord knows contraction's never going to happen, but it's just interesting to think about it that it was only two teams that even got a shot, and that way you knew who the best teams were. At least that's my take on that. Now let's welcome in Cam Miller, and we'll talk about Crosley Field. I know that my friend and yours, Cam Miller, he did a series about Crosley Field, kind of putting it all together. Let's talk about Crosley Field. Kind of paint me uh, a picture of what Crosley Field was like.
1: Well, well, Crosley Field was. It was built in 1912. It was it was a park in in, in a neighborhood which used to be the norm. Uh, it used to be the norm for baseball stadiums and parks and fields to be in neighborhoods. I mean, that was where you would go to work and you go factory and then you'd walk a couple blocks to the game. That's just the way things were. But of course with time and and transportation and how things work um, that had to go away. But the charm of it is what really got me when I was doing the uh, film for the hall of fame was how many people just said that the distinct Having that distinct ballpark meant so much to them because of the quirkiness of it, because you could go across the street, kind of like the way the Banks is now, Great American. Mm -hmm. You could go to the scoreboard cafe and grab a beer or a restaurant. Um, You could walk from your house. I mean, heck, Dave Parker lived a couple blocks from there, and he tells a great story of how he got a glove from Frank Robinson just hanging outside the stadium one day, and Frank Robinson throws Dave Parker a baseball glove. I mean, that's just an unbelievable story because that's the charm of it. It was in a neighborhood. It was right there next to housing, and of course, with technology and and transportation, like I said, you get the highway system goes through there. But there was something about that park that, and and players loved it, fans loved it. It was a dump, just kind of like Riverfront was. I mean, it was. <laughs> it, it didn't. They didn't put as much effort <laughs> back in those days to the care and to manicure the field and to do it as nice as it is now. But you can't, you can't deny that that era of baseball, when Crosley was at its peak, you know, 1912 to 1970 when they finally tore it down, that it was a park that, if you go to Fenway today, it's just like that. That's how it used to be in Cincinnati.
0: That's the one thing that struck me was that man that we're driving through what would have been the outfield now whenever we go down 75 and we pass by the old uh spot where the mechanical man and all that stuff, like oh yes. yeah <laughs> which by the way i
1: am um rebuilding the mechanical man on a scale to try to get nice. um young and berkey to uh f- they have one original left and it's in, in not good shape But I am making a uh, scale model of it so we can try to see what it would look like. I mean, will this ever happen? I don't know, but I'm going to try my hardest (laughs) to try to get that brought back because it was such an iconic, like you were saying, a part of of Crosley Field That any little thing like that. I mean, they had contests where you would have to, the the Young and Berkey Company, the, the manufacturing company, they, every year, would have a contest. Guess how many steps? The mechanical man walked during a season because it would turn it on for the games and then turn it off. Mm-hmm. So, all of those games in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, they would have it every year. And, they, and whoever guessed closest to how many steps he took, how many miles he walked, um, we get a pair of tickets to Reds games, season tickets to, to, to Reds games to the following year. Wow. Such a cool little thing. And If you look at old film, there's not a lot of it, but pictures, but the film is really just fantastic when you get to see him in action. And of course, you know, as a child, people that are old enough to remember what it looked like on 75 there when they moved Hmm. the plant and they they still had the sign. There was a couple of them, but it's been an obsession of mine to (laughs) bring that back um, in some way, shape or form.
0: That's awesome. I did he ever walk as much as Joey Votto? I the Red Reporter had a, good. <laughs> The Red Reporter had this awesome piece uh talking about over the last decade from two thousand ten to two thousand nineteen, he actually walked seventeen point eight miles. <laughs> Uh, You know, according to how many walks he got to first base. But, yeah, I wonder if it was ever uh, comparable there.
1: (laughs) I'm going to have to find that out. I'm going to have to go back and see if I can find the numbers um, of whoever won, because they would have the actual number posted. It was either a newspaper and some company documents of who won the the contest and how many. So we could kind of figure it out and have a comparison. See, who walked more? Uh, (laughs) Hubert? mechanical man or joseph daniel
0: Votto? <laughs> <laughs> that would be that would be pretty sweet when we look at how the stadium set up because like this one thing that i always think about great american it seems like there's concession stands everywhere no matter where you sit you have great access to food and beverages and all that different stuff was it that way um, back at a stadium that was built in 1912 or did they only have like certain places for that
1: yeah, it was much, much different. I mean, you had um, a few places, just the same with restrooms. I mean, they weren't thinking about convenience to fans. They were thinking about cost for the team. So whatever was cheapest to do, that's what they were <laughs> going to do. So you didn't have the onslaught of bathrooms, and you you weren't going to get a $10 beer anywhere. You had, this is where you got it, in a couple of locations, and there were some pay phones over here if you got to make a phone call, and that's about it. There was no gift shops. There was no um, – you didn't plug in your cell phone anywhere, <laughs> so okay. there was no social media uh, place. It was there as a baseball field, and that's what you did when you went there. You went to watch the game, and when you the game was over, you left and went to the scoreboard cafe and got a hot dog and a beer, and that was that.
0: So there's no place to buy a $45 T-shirt? No, I, it's, it's crazy. Now imagine how
1: much money they would have made if they would have had that, right. you know, thought process. Hey, put a couple of concessions and some uh, and you know, gift shops, maybe three or four along the uh, Western Avenue there. But yeah, all, all kidding aside, I mean, it's just it really is a fascinating. I still go down there every now and then, and I, I encourage people that are listening to do this, especially maybe now during this time of uncertainty go down to some of these locations. I mean, you can go to go online and find out where these places were in the streets and go to the locations and just stand on the corner of Finley and Western. Go to where Riverfront was and just kind of stand there and just kind of think about all of the history that went into these places. I mean, the players that came through there, not just Reds players, but the Lou Gehrigs, the Babe Ruth, mm-hmm. the Ty Cobbs. I mean... Think of a player, and we're lucky enough to have such history in Cincinnati that all these great players came here, and all the stands and you can almost hear the applause. I mean, it's it really is a, a kind of a therapy for baseball people that are wanting some kind of baseball in their life, and they can't do it. And I, mean, I know you can watch games on Fox Sports, and you can watch YouTube. But if you want the experience, go down to these stadium locations. Google the sites. You can find them. I post them on Twitter every now and then. I'm going to be posting some more stuff soon here on the ballparks. But just nice. go down there and experience it. Just stand there where they used to be. I'm telling you, it, it, it's a it's a cool thing.
0: One thing that I've always wanted it, it, it was the longest tenured stadium, right? Yeah. For the yes. Reds. For mean, the Reds it, I mean.
1: Because and you mentioned Redland. It was called Redland first. Basically, Redland and Crosley the same thing. So it's Redland in 1912 and then in the uh, mid-30s, Crosley, Pal Crosley Jr. buys it, and much against his, he did not want to be named Crosley Field. That was not his idea, Mm -hmm. Um, but that's what the ownership and the city leaders talked him into, so it ended up being Crosley Field. But yeah, the same location, um, it was in the same location from the 1880s on. I mean, they changed the location of home plate, obviously, a few times, and, and the dimensions changed over time, but from eighteen eighties until nineteen seventy, that was where baseball was played in Cincinnati in the West End.
0: Was it just a simple uh, thought process of ownership in the seventies was like, all right, this this place sucks. We need a new new place to play. Or well, I, how'd that go down? Yeah,
1: that's exactly right. I mean, well, a combination of um the Reds threatened to move to San Diego and there was talk of them moving and pal Crawley was not having that. But it was a serious thing where it was a good chance they could have moved um, if they didn't get a stay. And it sounds familiar. I mean, that still happens to this day. So it was going on then too. But you got to think also that the biggest thing was the um, tearing down of the West End. I mean, 75 had to go somewhere. I wish they would have found another location. <laughs> yeah. But 75 was coming through there and it just wasn't feasible. And the biggest problem... Was parking. I mean, if you had to pinpoint one thing, it was parking. Streetcar um, was awesome until cars were invented, and then cars <laughs> came along, and then everybody started taking the cars, and there was no place to go. So no place to put those cars. So they started tearing down buildings. The Reds purchased a lot of uh, of the dilapidated buildings uh, around the ballpark, but eventually you run out of room. And if you look at footage of The 1940 World Series, there is some of it out there. It's rare, but you see how awesome the backdrop was at Crosley with the old buildings and the big, giant billboards. It was just so pretty. And then you look at 1961 during the World Series, and it's just this giant dirt pile out in the outfield where they're putting 75 in, and it's like, oh, this doesn't look as cool, but it's still Crosley, so you're like, that's cool, it's Crosley. But then, and and then as you see in 1970 when they leave, and it becomes the impound lot for the city, and you see all these cars parked in second base and in right field. It's just oh, so depressing. But the one cool thing, I mean, I guess if you had to, uh, uh, if it, you could say it's a cool thing, I don't know, but uh, Pete Rose Jr. was the one that pulled the lever for the wrecking ball to make that first impact on the outfield wall when they were tearing it down. And there's <laughs> footage of that. It was in my uh, film for the Hall of Fame for Crosby Field. So that's kind of a cool little thing.
0: I uh, Hand up, I, I got to admit, I, I thought I knew just about as much as I could know about Red's history. I never knew that they threatened to go to San Diego.
1: Yes, they absolutely did. I will have to, I'll tell you what, my man, I am going to post some stuff on that. I have some uh, articles down in the archives somewhere, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit of uh, some clippings, and I'll post them on there, and I'll tag you so you can see it, and then you can retweet oh, and share it with the, with the podcast family.
0: Absolutely. I, I, I want to dig on that. That's an interesting, I, I never, Wow. <laughs> Learn something yes, new every it, day. I love that.
1: It, it would have it would have been interesting. I mean, it would have been the San Diego Padres. It would have would have San Diego Reds, maybe. i don't know if they really kept wow. the name or not. But uh, there, yeah, it was it was almost. But thank you, Pal Crosley Jr. for not allowing that to happen.
0: Yes, absolutely. Now I can't blame. I've been to San Diego. San Diego is a very nice place, but man, that...
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. There's something about. uh, the big red machine being in San Diego would have been weird. I mean, can you imagine that. Yeah. Oh, it just doesn't work.
0: <laughs> Pete Rose in San Diego. How about
1: oh, I'm telling <laughs> you, uh, to close up the racetracks.
0: See him doing a taco <laughs> commercial. That'd have been interesting. <laughs> yes, yes. There you go. <laughs> That'll do it for us here today on this Thursday. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Tomorrow, I have my friend and yours, Doug Gray, is going to join us. We're going to talk about stuff, life. Baseball, the Reds, you name it. Always have fun whenever I'm talking with Doug. You're not going to want to miss it. Best way to not miss it is to subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you're currently listening to. Also, follow me on Twitter at Jeff Carr with three F's and follow the show at Lockdown Reds and save the Lockdown Reds line number into your phone at 513 549 0159. Until then, though. Hit up your smart device and say, hey, smart device, play the latest episode of Locked On Fantasy Baseball. You'll enjoy their insight, and it'll just be fun to talk about fantasy baseball for a minute. But for now, that's, that's it for the Locked On Reds podcast. I'll talk to you guys tomorrow.